Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Hello and welcome. I'm here with Supriya Rao, who is a gastroenterologist who practices out of Massachusetts. She has a special interest in obesity medicine and weight loss. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kristen. So I'm really excited to hear about your journey, um, especially with all the different things that you've been doing when it comes to imposter syndrome. Can you kind of give a general overview of what your struggle has been like? So I would say um, I initially didn't feel like I had too much of a struggle in undergrad or even medical school. I noticed that I started feeling this way more and more as I progressed through my career, honestly, uh, starting with residency fellowship and then actually the beginning years of um, being a practicing gastroenterologist or an attending physician. Um, I didn't really feel, I felt when I was in college and even in med school that I, you know, I had the tools, I was able to do things and I didn't feel kind of boxed in a way that I felt later in my career. Um, as time went on though, even though I had gone through all the steps to eventually reach a practicing physician, when I hit residency, I started to feel more like, oh, is this, you know, I'm a physician now, but I'm starting to get, you know, I'm not as confident as I used to be. I feel like, oh, if I make a mistake, a patient's life you know, something could happen to them, it's in my hands. And I think that's where things kind of started for me. And as I progressed, I did feel being a um, minority female physician. And it's not that I was like severely discriminated against necessarily, but it was just more that small microaggressions were present. And then that made me feel even more like, oh, maybe I'm wrong in the way I'm thinking about things. Maybe I don't deserve to have a seat at the table. Um, and that's where some of my doubts started creeping in. Yeah, I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about microaggressions. Sure. So it, it's microaggressions for different reasons. Um, you know, when I started out as an attending, I was the youngest person in my group. And um, and so if I was about to do a procedure for somebody, they would kind of look at me and like half jokingly would say, are you even old enough to do this procedure? Do you, have you done enough of these? Am I gonna be okay under your care? And the number of times I've had to actually convince people that yes, I have done thousands and thousands of colonoscopies and endoscopies and you'll be safe under my care. It's countless, honestly. Um, the fact that I'm a woman, I've, um, you know, gastroenterology is still a very male dominated field because it's a procedural field. And I, uh, according to the American College of Gastroenterology, only 14% of gastroenterologists are women. And so um, it's still, you know, very male dominated. And I felt um, routinely, anytime someone says Dr. Rao, they automatically assume I'm a man mm -hmm. um, as a gastroenterologist, or I've had to, I walked into a patient's room and their face immediately changes when they see me because they're not expecting uh, a female physician. And so um, definitely microaggressions against gender mm -hmm. and race too. Um, actually, I remember early on in my career, like the first month, I believe when I was practicing, I was in the hospital waiting for the anesthesiologist to come for the procedure. He came and asked me if I was the language interpreter. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like different, you know, different things that I have faced on a daily basis that, you know, again, it's not anything so blatant or in my face, you know, you know, calling me a racial slur or anything like that. But it's definitely these aggressions that you feel and you just like try and move past it and don't address it. Oh, how do you even pronounce your last name? It's so hard to say. 
and my last name has three letters in it yeah and people are able to pronounce Schwarzenegger so I feel kind of you know it's just one of those things where yeah. you know it's an effort thing and just it it makes you feel like an other a little bit so yeah I think that's a good point and it's those little things that happen throughout the day especially when you're already in a place of feeling like you have to prove yourself right. that I think can really weigh someone down yeah definitely I uh when I was being hired, so I'm still in the first job I've had since fellowship. I graduated fellowship in 2014. Um, I love my job, which is why I'm there. But I remember being so nervous. I was the first person hired in nine years in the practice. And I was also the first female to be hired. So I had to have language written in about maternity leave and things like that. And I was just very hesitant and nervous about any decision I made, even though I knew I actually probably had the most knowledge and up-to-date knowledge compared to any of my other colleagues. They're all excellent, but I just finished training. So I knew all the cutting edge stuff. I knew everything that was going on in GI. But even then I would just like second guess myself constantly and run things by people, by my, you know, kind of senior colleagues just to feel sure of myself and feel like, yes, okay, I'm making the right decision. Or if a patient was upset about something, I'd be like, automatically assume it's my fault. And, you know, it's just one of those things that it was just like kind of like this downward spiral about my yeah. confidence during this. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic that you mentioned about writing into your contract about certain things. And I don't know if I would have had the same confidence to do that because I think for women, maybe even more than men, but especially as a new attending, you're just like, give me any job out of residency and I'll take yeah, it versus yeah. <laughs> really being able to say like, what's going to work for me and my family. So did you have, right. what was your struggle with that? Like, so currently or at that time, at that time, at that time. So I actually interviewed for that job. I had um, just given birth actually to my first child and mm -hmm. I was just exhausted and, you know, just trying to get through the, do, go through the motions of the day. And, and I really liked this group. I was actually trying to decide between this group, which is my private, a private group in Massachusetts versus an academic job in Philadelphia. And, um, these guys, you know, in the, in the Massachusetts group, they were like really supportive. They were really helpful, but very, you know, just kind of single-minded in terms of like, they're all men. They're all kind of of the same generation in terms of the way they thought about things. And, you know, the academic job had a lot of females in it. And so I felt like, oh, wow, I feel like there's at least precedent has been set here. But it didn't work out in terms of like, uh, my husband's also a physician. So we both had to get jobs in, mm -hmm. you know, and so it didn't work out. And I really did like this job. So I just was like, you know what, I'm probably going to have another kid at some point. We really need to kind of tackle this issue because if we don't, then I'm going to have a problem. And I brought it up in a very tentative way. I didn't, looking back, I feel like I should have been a little bit stronger about the way I yeah. worded things. But at that time, they were able to say, yes, you can definitely have, take as much time as you need, but um, it was all unpaid. So yeah, we don't have the benefits that like Facebook and Google have of like six months yeah. of paid leave. It wasn't like yeah. that at all. Still some work to be done, certainly, but I think it's important that as women, we're unapologetic about our priorities being, right. we are, uh, we have a family and that's great and we have a career and we can have both. And I think for a lot of younger women, especially are told still that they can't do both. And no, I think that it's agree. important that people know that you can absolutely have both. Oh, very much so. I mean, I think when I, after I had my son in 2015, uh, everybody automatically assumed I was going to go to part-time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very like commonly held misconception about women is that they're automatically going to go to part-time. That was never my consideration. And I think I surprised the rest of my colleagues. And actually, so my husband is a gastroenterologist as well. 
he was at a different hospital um, and wasn't too happy there and then decided to join our, so he's in my practice as well. Mm -hmm. And so once he joined, um, you know, I think they all saw like, yes, this is ha having a family and being a physician is hard, but it can be done. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, so I'm a managing partner. I make all, uh, you know, I take part in all the major decisions about strategy of the practice, about where we're going, the finances, who we hire, all of these things, like nothing gets done unless I say yes or no. And that's yeah. how it is with all of our partners. And um, the what I, I did feel that they did value my opinion from the very beginning. So that was really helpful. But um, I do think you don't, I mean, if you want to work part-time, that's totally fine, obviously. For me, I never, I knew I never wanted to do that. And I was glad that I was able to continue doing my job as well as, you know, being, having a flexible enough schedule to get home for things as well. Yeah, that's such a good point because I think women tend to judge other women and this is in and out of medicine. And I think so we're so worried about that, at least me, like, oh, I'm going to be judged because I, I work full time and I'm trying to raise a family or someone right. who is worried about going part time because they know that that's the best thing for them and that's what they want to do. And feeling that external judgment that they're not, they're not doing the right thing or the best thing. And we just need to get rid of that and say, I totally you do agree. whatever you want to do and we're going to figure it out. Yeah. Whether that's staying at home, whether that's working part-time or working full-time, whatever works for your family is what works for your family. And I think we need to be kind to each other, mm -hmm. especially as women. Like, I mean, we need to raise each other up. If someone's going to stay home and that, that, that works for them, then fine. But if, for me, I know, especially after be, having gone through this pandemic so far, I realize I am not that stay-at-home type. So I really need to be, you know, working full time. Um, and I think it's it's good for everybody. So in my family, at least. So I think you're you're exactly right. We really need to just see what works for everybody. Exactly. Back to what you first mentioned, how it, in the beginning you felt pretty confident. And then getting further into your training, that's when imposter syndrome began to take hold. Yeah. Did you find that it was the transitions that were the most difficult for you? Yeah, because I felt like I was leaving my comfort zone of where I had been for four years and then moving to a new place, having to meet new people, make new friends, be, you know, excellent at everything, trying to be everything to everybody and, you know, being a per like I'm a little bit of, I mean, in medicine, there are a lot of type A personalities. So you try and just be you know, excellent and show people that you are capable of doing all this stuff and more. Um, and I felt like, especially the transition from med school to residency was, you know, I'm just trying to show I'm the best and I'm a really good intern. I'm a really good uh, first year GI fellow. I'm, you know, excellent at all of these things. And um, it, it wears on you. You're trying to project away, but inside you're feeling so, you're feeling like, you know, inferior in some way, because someone was able to answer a question that you were like, oh my God, I know the answer to that. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, things like that for sure. Was there anything that you can pinpoint that really helped you when you were feeling the, those moments of like a fraud or an imposter? Right. Um, I had, uh, actually in all the places I've trained, I've had a really good um, group of girlfriends and, you know, who all felt similarly as mm -hmm. well. And, um, and, and guy friends too. I mean, I don't think imposter syndrome is limited to being a woman. No. I think men, men experience it as well. So it, it's just being able to decompress and kind of talk about things and, you know, have heart to heart discussions about things and realize that everyone else is feeling the exact same way. I think it's called pluralistic ignorance where you feel like, you know, you don't know anything, but you feel like everyone else must be so much smarter than you because mm -hmm. they, they don't show any doubts about themselves. But you're also not showing any doubts about yourself. So everyone is kind of in this like 
strange, you know, game. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think having a good group, a good core group of people is helpful. And my husband, I've, I met in medical school um, and he has always been a really great sounding board for me. Anytime I would go to him with my, you know, worries about this or, you know, or about anything, he would just be like, you know what you're talking about. You just need to have more confidence about what you're doing. And so mm-hmm. it was really helpful for him. To yeah. It's so great that you were able, you had close enough friends that you felt able to share those insecurities with. Yeah. Um, for a long time, me personally, I just felt like if I told anyone about how I was feeling then the, the whole imposter syndrome thing, I like, I would really be found out if I admitted that I had all these insecurities. Right. Yeah. But now, of course, I know that talking about it is really kind of half the battle. So Definitely. it's great that you learn that from early on to just talk. Yeah, about I would say in uh, like tw- towards the end of med school and residency. Yeah, I-, I would kind of make sure I was really good friends with people first before opening yeah. up. But I realized <laughs> I didn't necessarily have to be that way because everyone is feeling the exact same way. So exactly. in, in all your other roles, you know, you do a variety of things as, um, you know, being in charge of various things. Do you find that those thoughts of imposter syndrome creep in in any of your other roles that you have besides physician? Yeah, I um, feel, you know, sometimes as a mom, even, Mm -hmm. I feel like, oh my God, am I doing this right? Are my kids going to turn out normal? (laughs) Are they going to, or whatever, like, are they going to be okay? Am I doing what I should be? Is it because I am, you know, not around enough sometimes? Like, are they going to be psychologically affected later in life? Um, I think about that. Uh, at, at times, but I th- I, they're so far so good. They seem to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in other, you know, roles, um, I'm kind of involved in the Museum of Science here. And uh, initially, I was like, oh, why would they want me, in, you know, to be part of it? But again, it's it's these things where it's an initial thought that creeps into my mind, and then I talk to somebody about it, and I'm like, okay, yes, obviously, I'm qualified enough to do the job. I'm intelligent enough, or I'm I work hard enough to be able to manage this job. But, you know, I feel like it never goes away and you just need to kind of keep reminding yourself that, yes, you are worthy, you are capable, it's something that you can do. Yeah, that's such great advice because so often I think we are, we just, the thoughts that we have, we're just so used to believing them versus you kind of being able to critically analyze that and realize that it's actually a ridiculous thought and then right, just do exactly. things anyway. I think that's such a, you know, you, you make it sound like it's so, it's so easy, but I think it's a really great lesson to learn. And maybe for some people, for me, it took a lot of practice though. No, it, it, it's, it constantly takes practice. I'm still yeah. to this day, you know, I still second guess myself about things, but yeah. I have to say in my practice as a managing partner, I feel very comfortable about it because I've been doing it enough for, uh, at this time. So I feel very comfortable in the decisions that we make and taking part in those. But anytime I try something new, it, those, those, uh, thoughts automatically creep back in and I just need to keep telling myself it's okay. You can do it. And so, yeah. Is there anything that you could say to someone who is either in residency or maybe, uh, in fellowship that is feeling that really that burden of imposter syndrome? Well, I would say is to find, um, and I I was told this time and time again, and it might sound a little kind of cliched, but it's to find a good mentor, Mm -hmm. because I do think that uh, in residency, you know, I didn't know if I was going to go into GI or what I wanted to do, but then I did a rotation with one of, um, like, he's a great gastroenterology clinician, and he's one who helped me make you know, that choice. I was like, yes, I definitely want to do GI. But he, but um, he and a couple other people who I 
were my mentors in medical school and who I really um, valued, I think they helped me with my confidence as well. And same thing in fellowship. Um, there were a couple attendings that I became very close with and who were the ones to say like, yes, you are really good. I would have, you know, conversations about things, um, you know, you know, family balancing life and, you know, academic versus prior practice, all these kinds of conversations I had, not just with my, my peers, but with attendings as well. And I felt like that really was helpful to have their perspective on it because they had been through, you know, there were some people who had been in my place just a few years prior. And so it was really mm -hmm. helpful to have their opinions. But I think surrounding yourself with a good, it doesn't have to be a big group. It can even be a couple people, just a good group of like-minded individuals who you know, are able to support you through all of it, uh, as well as, you know, uh, finding a good mentor who can help guide your career and be really honest with you about the path that you take and uh, being supportive of you in that way, too. Yeah, I, I love the um, advice about finding a mentor. I think for some people, it can be a challenge, though. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's obviously in residency, you you are around plenty of attendings. In OBGYN, for me, this is my own personal, my own personal story, but it was easy to find mentors to like for surgeries and that kind of thing. But to find a mentor who had really kind of carved out the life they wanted and enjoyed their career and didn't feel like they were burning out. Yeah, that was a challenge for me. So I don't know if if you've ever experienced that, but I think especially as a, as a woman in medicine, it's important to find someone who has carved out the career that they really enjoy. And that way you can see that that exists on the other side. Exactly. I actually, I mean, I had different mentors. I had a mentor who was like a research mentor. I had a mentor who was more of a life mentor because yeah. those two things didn't necessarily overlap in one Correct. person. Um, and then there are some women who I really admired, but they had a life that I just could not see myself leading. Mm -hmm. um, you know, waking up super, super early in the morning and, you know, not seeing their family as much. It, it was just like, you know, Certain things I, I really loved about them. I loved their work ethic. I loved, you know, that they were able to get so many things done, but other parts of their life I didn't really like that much. And so I, I felt like I, it took me a while to find somebody who had kind of carved out something that I could see myself doing in the future. Yeah. Um, in fellowship, I was actually able to find that a little bit quicker because I, I feel like in fellowship, you become a lot closer with your attendings. You just see them much more. And it's not like you're going off on different rotations. It's just the GI service or the consult service. And so mm -hmm. um, you got really close with the attendings and I was able to find people who, even if they weren't necessarily um, exactly on the path that they want to be, they were able to voice that and say like, you know what, this is what I want to do right now, but I'm going to change direction and do something else in a few years. But it was something that I could see myself being like, yes, I get that. I understand where you're coming from and I understand and I can see myself doing some part of this. Yeah. So I think that was really helpful. It seems like you have a lot of clarity about what you the, like, what you want out of life, what your goals are. Have you always been like that, or did it take some kind of soul searching about this is what I want out of my career and out of my life? It took soul searching. I would say um, I feel like a very different person in some ways from you know my twenties. You know, I'm in my late thirties now uh, to now because I feel like. I was super idealistic about everything in my 20s. And I was like, oh, I can do this, this, and this. And I realized that I can't do everything, but I'm able to do most of what I want. And I think I, I'm, I still, I do it fairly well, um, as long as I'm able to keep myself sane. I do feel like after having kids, it did take a couple years for me to kind of get back on the whole road of career. Um, not that I didn't 
I was still working full time, but until my son turned two and I was kind of out of those initial years of, mm -hmm. you know, breastfeeding and nights and all this kind of stuff, um, I was able to get clarity about two years after he was born. And I was like, okay, setting myself up. This is what I want to do. I see myself doing this in the next you know, five to 10 years. And I'm constantly reassessing that every few months saying, okay, do I like where I am right now in the way, or do I like the way our practice is going, the direction it's going? Um, and I think it did take me a long time to arrive at that clarity. And I, and it only happened once the baby, baby part of my like kids was over because otherwise I was just too focused on them at that time. And I still, I still am focused on them, but it's just, they're, they're, they're older now and they're able to like, you know, do some things on their own that have allowed me to kind of concentrate a little bit more on my career. It's a great point though, that it's worth it to ask yourself those questions, mm -hmm. because if you don't ever ask yourself what you want to be doing, then you're just going to be responding to other people's desires for you. And then you're, right. end up, you're stuck in a hole uh, in a job that you don't like, you know? Uh, I feel really fortunate to be in the job I'm in right now because they do, it, it does allow me a lot of, I, I'm able to do all the things I wanted when I was in fellowship in terms of like clinically. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I feel very lucky in that way that I've been given a lot of freedom to do things, which I don't feel like is necessarily present in a lot of other jobs I was interviewing for at that time. Um, so, and, and it's allowed me to see my kids enough that I like feel like I'm very involved in their day to day as well. That's awesome. Anything else that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? I think it's just very easy to be hard on yourself and to always yeah. expect, I'm always expecting myself to perform at like some ridiculously, you know, high level. And I think that's just maybe kind of like, be, you know, born from immigrant families and, you know, like, you know, just, you know, being raised yeah. as a you know, first generation and having crazy expectations about yourself and trying to meet those. And if you don't meet them, you feel like a failure. I think um, being kinder to yourself and just allowing yourself to figure out what you really want in life, because if you're just catering to everyone else in your life, you'll never be happy. And yeah. I think that really being introspective and really figuring out what it is that makes you happy, whether it's full clinical medicine, whether, whether it's research, whether it's some version of the two, healthcare policy. Mm -hmm. A lot of my friends, um, or a lot of people I knew from my med school class didn't end up going into clinical medicine. They chose all sorts of different paths. And I think uh, it's really important to know what that, what it is that really drives your passion and makes you happy. And I think you, you'll have that sense of clarity and the imposter syndrome thing won't come out as, or you won't maybe not feel it as much because you'll feel so passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And you have that more, that sense of purpose, I think really. Yeah, exactly. You from that. And I think that you made another, another great point is that perfect, that perfectionism is going to set you up for disaster and feeling like you can't fail and not being, allowing yourself to make errors. I think those are important things because you can strive for excellence without being a perfectionist. And I think exactly. in, in our medical <laughs> training that gets lost a little bit. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.